I would like to take a minute to welcome you to our very special first episode. Bear with me and my guest, as this is the first time of many conversations to be had, and the kinks and quirks will be worked out, and new ones, I'm sure, will find their way in. Uh, but like I said, bear with us. It's a work in progress. I want to introduce to you Devin Blaney. He is a chef and a friend that I have had the pleasure of working with and knowing since about 2014, fall, somewhere around there. Um, we worked together in my first restaurant job in Vancouver. Um, it actually ended pretty terribly for everybody involved. Um, we will not get into that so much. Um, Devin talks about the ethics of the industry, uh, where we should be going after our COVID lockdowns, some political views, which are later on in the episode. And he has some really, really great insights. His story is about family, about experiences and trials and tribulations uh, with health and uh, physical health, now mental health later and now because it never goes away. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to hear a real story about a real individual in the food and beverage industry that is happy to share these conversations with you at their own detriment because this is a conversation that should be had and should be normal for everyone. Please do understand that this is an open conversation and a safe space for all. There is definitely foul language, discussions about health and abuse. If you are triggered by these sorts of things, please listen with caution and maybe not the ideal podcast for your children to be listening to. Enjoy our very real conversation. We got all the personalities from the world of hospitality. So let's talk about reality here on Hospitality for Humanity. Ways about it, ways about managing your uh, your diet that, um, you know, if you ever want to get into that, it's a pretty deep dive. I definitely do. And I'm, I'm looking at this as being a way to focus myself uh, on something. Um, if I'm actually going to be like, if I'm really worried about, I mean, I shouldn't say really worried. If, if, if my health is a concern that must be addressed, which is how I'm looking at this, <laughs> this will potentially, this could be a way for me to really hone in on something. And because I'm already have inklings uh, towards the health and wellness side of things, I'm already interested in nutrition properly. And I still haven't delved into that or really learned it, you know, taken that, taken that effort because I still just watch videos or just disassociate a lot. So I would like to use this as a focusing tool to further hone my focus on living a happier, healthier life than looking at trying to make myself feel better, which is where I've been coming from. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's that like, even when I sort of saw that happening for myself about five years ago, mm -hmm. you know, where I was like, Oh, I want to, I want to live happier and healthier. Mm -hmm. And I gave myself this sort of five-year deadline. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
who knew that, you know, COVID would happen. Right. Who knew that that would induce me, that would induce a panic attack and sort of like be the, 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 the sort of like peak of like my bottom and then like my, my, my like low mm-hmm. and my struggles in terms of like what I was, where the path I was going on. And then it's like, whoa, those ideas that I had were cool or putting me into a way of like, um, an, an, a direction of dealing with my health, my happiness, but they were only patchwork solutions. And now, now it's sort of like, um, how to understand how to do it in a sustainable manner. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I see that you're on that path. So that you're, that you're going to go in that direction anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the, so basically like what I would love to do is just reel back, mm-hmm. like turn back the cloth in the conversation mm-hmm. and just learn a little bit about Devin mm-hmm. and like how, you know, where, how you came to the food and beverage industry and like, mm-hmm. how you, like, like where you came out of school, like where you came out of school and like how you grew up sort of thing. Like what's the foundation <laughs> of <made> Devin? <laughs> uh, Trauma, basically. <laughs> and uh, I mean, uh, I, I, I do laugh at it, but I have no, I, there really is the more the, the research, the, not the, I should say the work I've done over the past like three years, but really heavily in the past year and a half uh, has really kind of honed in on how my whole upbringing has been around some sort of a traumatic association. Right. Not mine necessarily, but my parents and then mine. Like I've discovered that and I don't know this to be 100 percent true, but I'm fairly certain that there was a uh, molestation that happened to me at a very young age, maybe only once, maybe a couple of times at the most, but that my parents freaked out about it and then had this uh, and then that reaction was a problem. And then my mother was very very challenged her whole, my whole life as a individual, as a parent. And my dad was just, was not there at all. Um, he was always working or away and having multiple affairs. So there was just like a lot of stress and duress in my upbringing. And I moved 15 times by the time I was 15. Um, I was born in Edmonton. I left when I was three months old and I've never been back. Uh, then spent, couple of years traveling throughout Western Canada as a baby, including going down into California. Uh, my earliest memories burning my feet on a heat register in California at the age of like two and a half. Um, then brought back to Ottawa for a little bit where my sister was first sister was born and then moved from another to another house, then moved to another house. And then my other sister was born, then moved to another place uh, and then back to Ottawa. I didn't go to school until I went to, I went to should uh, slowly. Yeah. My schooling was, I was, uh, given, put into a nurse, not a nursery, but a preschool at the age of like three or four. And it was a Montessori school, which was very regimented at that time. Like you couldn't go to the bathroom until it was bathroom time, for example. And, um, and you all went together. And then from the age of five, six, I didn't go to school. I was homeschooled, which was just made me running around outside with the neighbor's kids. And then I went to school for the first time in grade two. And then at a Waldorf school, which was the first year of a Waldorf school in Ottawa. So I was my only grade. And then the second year I was there, there was grade three and two, three, uh, 
yeah. So there was two and one and then two and three, two, one, and so on. And then I did that until grade six. Uh, and then my parents sold their house and moved to Massachusetts for two years. Uh, so I went from Ottawa to this one private school. Was it work related or? Yeah. My dad was trying to get a green card at this point, but he's a doc. He was a doctor. So he didn't need to move. He just had this nomadic style. Um, he went to Edmonton because it was the only medical school that would t- the only hospital that would take him the way he looked. Cause this was 1970. And so he had big beard and hair and, yeah, uh, his graduation photo was a t-shirt that said things go better with cocaine on it in the Coca-Cola font. Right. Like, so this was, this was my dad being an alternative medicine practitioner. And I was also brought up as uh, in an organic uh, homeopathic light household, no vaccines. I wasn't vaccinated for anything as a child. Um, mostly vegetarian until I was 14, um, completely vegetarian until I was seven or eight, um, almost vegan. And, uh, and then, so in Massachusetts, we moved twice as well. And then in Massachusetts is when I discovered my dad was having a long-term affair. And it was the first time my mother tried to kill herself in front of me. And, um, I also had to tackle, I had to shout at my parents because they were fighting, literally rolling around on the ground, um, and yell at them to stop it. And, uh, and witness my mother take my three younger siblings and have them leave an obscene voice message on my dad's girlfriend's, uh, uh, answering machine and then moved in Massachusetts to another place and um, started going, started working part-time at a sprout packing sprout house, as it was called as a, a babysitter slash uh, mailer. Uh, and then my mother tried to get me to give her my salary of $3 and 20 cents an hour um, because there wasn't enough money in the household. Uh, and, um, and then I had to leave that because my mother kept seeing my father in me. And so she, was clashing with me and I threatened to break her nose one day. Um, and when she threatened to hit me and then I called my dad and said, you have to get me out of here because one of us will not survive this. And so I moved back to Ottawa and lived with my dad, which was to live in an empty apartment most of the time because he was with said girlfriend. Um, then moved in with them in another place in Ottawa, went to high school in a public high school now in this 3000 capacity school from going from a school with 14 people in my class to having, you know, 800 people in my grade. Um, and, uh, I did not cope with that very well, though. I did meet a friend I still have there. And then one day I come home from school, which I'm hating. And, uh, and I, my dad tells me, asks me if I want to smoke a joint with him and my stepmother, I'm in grade nine. And, uh, because they have something big they want to tell me. I'm like, okay. And then they tell me that we're going to go to Jamaica in two days. You can't tell anyone. And we're going to go for a few months. I'm like, okay. So 13, 14, I guess. I'm whipped, whisked off to Jamaica at the before my school year is over. Um, and then we stay there for two months. They took my soon-to-be stepbrother with me, but they didn't inform his father of this, who had custody. So he went home early, obviously. And then, and then I came back from this two month odyssey in Jamaica as a solo 14 year old with my messed up parents. Um, and they fed me a, a pot brownie on my trip out. So on the plane, I got high and lightheaded and they had to get the meal brought to me before the time because I was suffering hypoglycemia due to the, uh, dilation of my blood vessels or whatever. I don't know exactly what happened, but yeah. So then I, I get back to 
to Ottawa and it finds out that I didn't get any credit for any of my grade nine classes except for art. They didn't even, didn't even give me PE. Right. But, um, and then they moved me to 108 mile house in BC because my dad declared bankruptcy at this time, um, personal bankruptcy. And my aunt lived in hundred mile house, uh, in a commune, um, with the emissaries of divine light. And, uh, so she was there and arranged to get us some housing. And that was at the 108 mile ranch, which was eight miles, of course, outside of hundred mile house. Uh, and, uh, my new room was smaller than my previous bed had been. So I had not even a full size single bed. I had like a junior single bed. <laughs> I sat in there for like the first three hours I was there, just like, couldn't believe this has had happened to me. Um, and then I'm in the most white high school I've ever been in, uh, just bullies. I didn't understand how to deal with it. I was dressed kind of like a punk at the time. I was wearing like patent leather Doc Martens. I had a blazer with festooned with chains and, and stuff. And so they're all wearing like Budweiser t-shirts and high top running shoes. And so that was, uh, first year was just basically me staying in my room, listening to music, which I got through the Columbia house, uh, system because there was no other way to buy any, any music there. Um, and, uh, manage. And then I started working at 16 as a dishwasher at this, the 108 resort, which was down the road because my dad was pushing me to get a job. Um, so I worked through grade 11, 12, um, and made a few friends, but mostly just started my drinking and drug use at that age and, um, working way too much for somebody who's going to high school. Like in grade 12, I was probably working 30 hours a week and, uh, you know, and, um, so I was working full weekends. I was working after school three days a week at least. And, um, and so I didn't even do homework in grade 12. So so you, sorry. Yeah. So you went, you moved, that's, that's an insane amount of times you're moving as a child. That's sort of yeah. like, mm-hmm. yeah. and it, so, do you, do you see that specifically reflected in your career? I do. And I see it reflected in my long-term inability to make close friends, right? Like I, I learned how to be good at making acquaintances, but there was no vulnerability ever, you know? Um, and I'm not sure where the whole idea that I was always wrong came from, but like, that was just, and I think that's more from like my mother being really like, so wound up that if I just touched her, she'd explode. So it was like, everything was just like an open sore. So you just, I just didn't want to make, I didn't want to take up space. Like, Oh, and I, I, I put a lock on my bedroom door when I was eight. Um, then they, they let me do that. They let me lock myself in my room. So you learned how to set boundaries at an early age. Yeah, I guess so. And protection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, not necessarily the healthiest boundaries because I, I let people push me around too much in other ways, you know? Wow. Yeah. So, so, uh, started cooking at 13, 16 or 16. Yeah. Dishwashing before that. Yeah. Only seven months though. They promoted me out of dishwashing pretty quick. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I remember, I remember, uh, only ever picking up dish shifts. Yeah. But, um, it it seems, you know, like, and I got, I hate drawing these like parallels, but it seems mm-hmm. like a lot of your story resonates a little mm-hmm. bit, like a little bit similar for me too, you know, mm-hmm. moving around, except for my father wasn't a doctor. Mm-hmm. He, uh, sold, uh, sold books for the church, like Bibles, oh, okay. stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and, uh, 
you know, spoke at uh, different churches and, uh, you know, as we moved around the East coast and mm-hmm. Ontario and so forth. Um, but man, that, that like uprooting and like moved that like quick, like four month sabbatical in Jamaica. That's a crazy story. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and yeah. And then, so when I moved to Vancouver, it just was normal for me to move every year. Like when my lease ran up, that just meant it was time to leave. It wasn't time to like renew the lease. It was really kind of, it, it took like probably, Oh God, 10 years before I actually started living in this place for more than one year. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, uh, and I've never kind of stopped. Like, and so this is where I come back to the idea that I've been constantly trying to make myself feel better instead of actually being better or being content, I suppose, or just being accepting. I mean, I don't want to accept bad shit cause I'm not putting up with bullshit anymore. That's another, like, this is what I'm dealing with right now with this job is this like, I've coped. I've always coped. I've always like, okay, this is fine. I'm not coping anymore in that sense. I'm not going to cope with something I know is wrong. No, no, you I'll, I'll cope with what needs to be coped with, but you owe it to yourself to, yeah. you know, set some serious boundaries and, mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. and request a, res- a resolution, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's, it's, uh, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore, but, but it's like, you know, so I, I recognize now that I've lived, I lived a very long time in a completely disassociated state, right? Like, um, I would say there was a solid 10 year period from about the age of 25 to 35 where I really wasn't present at all. Uh, I don't feel I matured emotionally in any way. I don't even really recall a lot of that period of time. Um, and I had lots of fun apparently, but, but it was the gate got me nowhere. I didn't gain any, social standing. I certainly didn't gain any work standing. All I did was use time and money. Like, and, uh, and it was just in the sense of trying to feel better, I think, or escape from how bad I was feeling or how much shame at whatever there was there, you know, because another thing I've recognized is that I've not been representing myself as who I am, um, ever. This is, I've been, again, in denial about what my actual true sort of being wants to express. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I haven't, I haven't really said to really anybody, but I've become aware that I'm not a cis male. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I would say that my best definition is I'm probably pansexual and with a little bit of gender fluidity, to be honest, you know, like, um, I don't ever, I've never felt comfortable in the men's locker room. I've never enjoyed what most guys enjoy, you know, I mean, some sports I watch and stuff and I enjoy physical activity. And again, I feel like myself as a male, like I don't consider myself a they, but something's never been right. And I've always had this. And I think that that lack of comfort in myself has really stood in the way also of me developing relationships and certainly in developing any sort of like romantic relationships. Cause I've struck out almost every time there like the only real relationship i've ever had was that one with vanessa and that was not a proper healthy space either you know i mean and uh and since nothing right like just nothing so um but uh, i've done a bit of a couple of like pretty hardcore psychedelic journeys right in the last year and a half and that's kind of forced me to look at that Tell me, what you're, tell me about that like 
what what are you uh what do you what do you like when you say psychedelic what do you mean okay so what i mean is um i took uh three different uh experiences and they were all um structured and they were all witnessed by a non-participant who was just there to witness but not to consume any of the same substances but to help administer you essentially what's that they were sitting like they were sitting sitting. they were sitting Mm -hmm. and so the first experience was a fairly mild dose of psilocybin and uh mdma together but sort of timed a little bit differently so the idea was the psilocybin would be the first experience and then the mdma would kind of come in afterwards um and they were both at like more recreational dose levels, but because they were done together, that was, so the psilocybin was about two grams or something. And the MDMA was, I don't know, 80 milligrams or something. Um, and then the second experience was a much higher dose of pure MDMA, which was interesting. Um, and then the final one was a very high dose of psilocybin in the absolute dark, like a uh, blacked out basement with again, the witness, but the witness is also in the dark with me. Um, and part of my experience that came out of that is that stating something out loud is very different for you than just thinking it to yourself. Even if you think it's the same sort of consent, like the way, but like, but when I was on the psilocybin, the big mushroom trip, the mushroom guide, so to speak, cause it kind of feels like there's a teacher there, right. Mm-hmm. Was basically just demanding that I, I verbalize these realizations I was having. And so like, I remember myself saying, it's like, okay, okay, I'll say it fine. And then that's when I admitted that I was, uh, at that time I used the term bisexual, but I don't really think that's true. I don't, I don't find myself attracted to men. I find myself attracted to people, but specific people. And I'm attracted to women mostly, right? Like, um, so, but it does, but I, but I was like having this, I was really fighting with, like, I got kind of afraid of doing MDMA because I was having that kind of awareness creeping in. And I just thought it was the drug making me behave in ways. I just thought the, you know, the horniness or whatever the drug was picking up was causing me to go beyond what, who I was. But in reality, it was getting me to a place where I wasn't feeling bad about that idea. Because the idea that I've been spoken, how it's been outlaid to me, and I, and I kind of grasp this, is that MDMA's use in trauma treatment is it allows you to go back to that traumatic moment without being feeling attached to it and re-traumatized by it, but you can witness it. You can kind of like an analyze, just see it. Um, and then the psilocybin is one that will really open fall, 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 go deep or go wherever it wants you to go at that point. Like, because my experience was not happy joyous skipping through fields watching a bunch of nice um shapes it was intense i i vocalized a lot i just guttural like scream sometimes it was a full body like intensity like i got up i moved around i was just like it was really intense and i i think the only reason that i wouldn't have kind of been like this is a bad trip is because i've done so much recreational psychedelics as a younger person like i've done a lot of mushrooms i used to do a lot of lsd um, but never in what we call therapeutic or heroic doses. Right. Cause like my big dose was seven grams uh, at once, which is probably three times more than I'd ever taken at once before. Um, and, uh, and it, it really 
that experience along with my meditation. I've been doing daily meditation now for a little over a year. Um, I've been reading into spirituality idea of just like, you're not owning your thoughts. You're not, you're not, you're, you're not the body. You're not these things. You are just basically the witness. And that all coupled together has, has, uh, really, I think made some massive changes in my outlook, uh, on, on how I attach to things, how I react, uh, to things. Um, and I can't say what's been more or less important. I think it's all just part of it. I think that just simply getting sick and tired of my own bullshit about a few years ago was the part. I think my dad dying was a huge catalyst for this movement in me, which I don't wish that on anyone, but definitely things have changed dramatically and for the better, for the most part since that point. Right. Um, you know, and that also gave me a window into the true level of insanity that he was right. Like, so it broke the spell a little bit or a lot, I should say, because like my worst fear used to always be my something happening to my dad. And I think that was because he was always absent, you know, potentially, or I'd never live up to him. Right. But, um, but you know, there's lots more of the depths of things that have, that really played a role in my psyche is that, you know, like the way you're every idea was not a good idea. Everything was not going to work. Everything was too hard, but you could never be wrong. Whenever you were wrong, you were like the shame, you know, like, so it's, it's, uh, when you have narcissists and perfectionists as, as, as role models, it's, mm-hmm. it's a challenge, you know? So, um, now like we have this picture of Devin mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of like where you've come from and like, part of your new, new journey and where that's like what mm-hmm. has been uh where your catalysts have been and your sort of stages so like you know like how long ago did your dad pass away uh five and a half years ago so that that was then and then now we're having this sort of yeah um health awakening yeah and it was i'm it was my dad's birthday it was the day i was in the hospital too oh, wow yeah. so is there any correlation with do you think with the the stress around that, you know, like thinking about it, maybe putting you into, um, fight or flight mode, like sort of like thinking, reflecting. I, I, I do think that there's, there's something to be said about that. I think that that coupled with all the other sort of stressors, not all like, I don't mean like they're all negative stressors, but I mean, a lot of others, like the work thing is pretty fucked up. Um, I live in a semi uncomfortable space. Um, I haven't had my own space in over three years. So, and, um, it's maybe that's it, that's all part of part of it, but, but, uh, yeah, like I think so. Cause it did feel like a panic attack after looking into it, but it also is correlation with the time of, I had the Pfizer vaccine nine days before this happened too. And there's that pericarditis that can go along with that, or you just get a large heart and all those symptoms for what I was having as well. But I don't know. I mean, like it's for, it's almost impossible without taking some serious tests that they're not going to uh, give me to know if I've, that's related I've, anymore. I've heard about situations um, where people have gone um, into depression after having the second vaccine or like even just about like surrounding COVID in general, mm. you know, like, so this is the, like, this is like a whole other subject, but, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but still pretty relevant because mm-hmm. it's impacted 
like the food and beverage industry that you've been a part of your whole life. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and change that. And I think that, uh, part of the direction I want the conversation to go in is like, let's talk, we could say like how you've observed or how you would now look back and observe your experiences in the, in, in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, with what you know now mm-hmm. and how it affected you. Mm-hmm. Like I know for myself that like, like, yeah, learning toxic behaviors in the workplace, um, terrible management skills, mm-hmm. uh, terrible interpersonal skills. Like mm-hmm. it took, like, I know for a fact, like this is just an example, right? So mm-hmm. that, so I can see where I want you to go, but, um, it took me to like buying books on people management mm. and like, and working with people and like you, you and I've worked together and we've known, we've, we've known how it, <laughs> how yeah. that could go down as well. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Right. Like when you're in it, you're not you anymore. Like, I mean, I, I used to say that I had, you're, you're actually acting. Yeah, Absolutely. And in, in many cases, you're acting in a way that you think you're supposed to mm-hmm. by the people observing you. And they, I've realized now is that they're doing the same thing and pretty much everybody's doing that. Um, and if we could all just stop doing that, it would be an amazing experience. Potentially. I'm not saying it'd be a good experience. It would be very different. <laughs> you, know? you know, like I'd say this about the food and beverage industry too, is that I think we're, you can maybe have a vag give us a vag chronological oh yeah okay so like evolution just be like and just look at it now and be like and think about like how how it's how we could change it or you know like Mm, how it's involved and then first involved definitely like i can't say the same things in a kitchen yeah or in a bar to my management team that i used to say uh two decades ago no, 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 no. A lot of, a lot of that, that has changed. The, unfortunately, the part that I wouldn't changed. I wouldn't. Yeah. 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 No, of course not. Of course not. You wouldn't. And in fact, now I will call people out for saying shit like that, you know? Um, and, and that needed to change and that needs to continue to change. But I, I think that things that need to change are much, much more basic to the point where I don't know how to fix it now. Cause I think the point of, that time when we could have fixed it without too much drama passed a while ago. Um, and it's so mutated now that it's there's some, there's so many things wrong that I, I don't know, like it owners don't make money anymore. So I don't know what to do if they don't make money. Um, if staff don't make money and nobody wants to do it because it's such an unpleasant environment, primarily because we haven't had enough staff for the longest time. Right. Like, I don't know. I think it's been a five or six years. no, probably longer eight years since we actually were able to hire enough qualified people to do the jobs we wanted to do. Like it's, but it's happened such an attrition that it is forgotten or not noticed by a lot of people, but a long time ago, I mean, this is before my time. Yeah. Like may I interject for a hot second? Yeah, sure. Sure. Because I, there's something that, um, that I've thought about in correlation with that. And that is the, the way that the industry set up, especially in North America, mm-hmm. um, 
with the tip-based system, the tip mm -hmm. pool. That's a huge part of the problem. It has been a huge part of the problem because it allows people to use it as a transient experience being like, yeah. oh, well, I mean, I'm a human, so I know how to serve. Mm -hmm. You don't. Or mm -hmm. I know how to uh, be hospitable to somebody. You don't. You know, like you can't just be dropped into these situations and, and expect somebody to like, I mean, there are, you know, there are charming individuals that will mm -hmm. come out and, you know, shine like stars right away, but that's mm -hmm. far between. No, and, and really, I think the direction of where I'm going with this is that because people weren't ever paid an appropriate wage, it didn't allow people to take it as a serious mm -hmm. job so that, the majority of people that enter the food and beverage industry only do it as a vocation to pay for school, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then eventually dot duck out bow out, right. Where it's like, Oh, yeah. um, I did that. You know how many times when I would bartend where I would get people that like, Oh, I used to bartend buddy. Yeah. I used to bartend. Right. And it's like, yeah. so, uh, where, what did you bar? What did you do? Cause I, I really don't care. Because yeah. if you're saying you used to, that means that, you know, like usually, and I'm not, not saying for everybody, but for most people that say they used to be a chef or they used to bartend, mm -hmm. that means that they either were part of the problem mm -hmm. and that is creating that, keeping that story of what is the industry in North America going. Mm-hmm. Or they've realized that there's a problem and they got out. Yeah. And then I think a little bit of it too, is that when they say that to you, they're also kind of saying, how come you haven't done it too? Like, why are you still here? Yeah. Like, so I got a real job now, you know, like, so then it becomes insulting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then we now have this added component where if you're a server at a really at certain, certain special restaurants, you make a hundred thousand dollars a year and you can hide half of it right? Like it's, it's exceptional. And yet the kitchen, the kitchen staff in that same restaurant will be making a hundred bucks a day or 150 bucks a day. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then, so you have this, like, it's, it's inconscionable to me that we have a situation where anybody's making five times more than anyone else is when they're effectively contributing to the service in an equal part, you know, like I, I don't, so that, but that's not really, that isn't, a core cause of the issue. That's just kind of the manifestation of a symptom reached a perverse level, right? Like I, I feel like, like our society and as well, because I feel like all of these, or I shouldn't say feel, I think all of these absurdities that we're in now are just simply the product of years of a fucked up system that have now reached their Zenith where they can't even pretend that they're functional anymore. Right. Yeah. And, and, and like, and so I think the restaurant industry is kind of a microcosm of that because first of all, how come free market hasn't fixed the labor shortage? It's supposed to free market's supposed to figure this shit out, but it's not. And it's spectacularly not <laughs> right. So, and I don't think the free market's holding up its end of the mark. You know, if you're a capitalist in a true capitalist society, you just keep paying more until you get the persons you want. That's how it's supposed to work. And then you figure the costs out. Right. But here they're going, well, we just can't pay more than $14 an hour. And so no one's, and everyone's saying, well, I'm not working for $14 an hour. And they're going like, well, why people won't work for us anymore? Oh my God, save us. Right. It's like, no, pay 18, pay 20, pay 22, pay 25. 
you know? But if that can't work, then the system isn't working the way it's supposed to, right? Yeah, so it's all a bunch of lies and bullshit yeah, well, and because it makes one person a lot of money, you know? You get there structurally, like when somebody goes, oh, um, I can't pay you $25 an hour. Do you know why? Like they, 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 because that's taking money out of somewhere else, generally mm-hmm. the restaurant owner's pocket. Mm-hmm. And, and then it, and then it's making them have to inflate the price yeah. of their services of their, of their products. Yeah. So that, um, when somebody comes to dine at their establishment or drink at their establishment, they're going, wow, it's way too ex- fucking expensive here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go down the street to the other guy, but mm-hmm. You know what you're doing? You're supporting the other guy that's paying his staff minimum wage, mm-hmm. you know, and you're perpetuating the system mm-hmm. by throwing those, throwing tip money at that person mm-hmm. who, um, unfortunately is not yeah. going to add up to anything on paper, not even be able to own a fucking home. Right. Cause that's the flip side of actually being a server, making a lot of money. Even if you declare it, it's still not showing up on paper very well. So you don't get loans based on that. You get loans based on your payroll. Um, but you know, like it's an interesting to watch it right now though, because right now post COVID post COVID, uh, post COVID assistance, I should say, um, is that there's just nobody actually filling those minimum wage jobs anymore. They're just not doing them. Um, at least not in the food and beverage industry. They're just not doing it. Like they're not there. It's, it's, it's not a matter of getting someone who's woefully underqualified for the job. There's just literally not a soul there. And that's, what's different. That is a fundamental shift. And, and, and that is interesting for me to watch because I've always been places where we thought that was going to happen, but eventually you managed to find someone put in that, that hole. Right. Which was frustrating as a manager, because you're like, I don't have any staff that know what they're doing, but at least I have people. But now you don't even have that. You don't even have the people. And, uh, and it's, and it's everyone. And it's just like, wow, this is, this is, re- yeah. this is going to force some change, but, and I think it'll have to, the, the only solution I see at this point is major contraction of the number of restaurants that exist and, and the costs have to go up on all of them. And the people have to stop trying to fuck each other so much in this industry. Like mm-hmm. I've been really annoyed at the leadership in this industry for a long time. Um, and I, there's so much hypocrisy that I see in it. You know, and, and I'll use an example of one famous Vancouver chef owner who was one of the worst people for doing the daily rate bullshit. He was one of the start people that started this thing where you're not even getting a salary. Now you're getting just a day rate, which is not legal hands down period, because you're working 14 hours for a hundred dollars or something. And, and he perpetuated that and it grew and it became a kind of industry standard and then it just it, it it was the beginning of the exodus from the kitchen because everyone just like no this is fucking insane you know it's not even salary so if i'm sick i still don't get paid i have no paid vacation like this is the worst of both worlds but then he goes on and he has a podcast and he's fucking bitching about how there's not enough staff and he doesn't know what's wrong with the industry and how this has to change and I'm like it's your fault people like you you hypocrite you asshole you know like i just want to fucking hit him like i've had a problem with him for many years because of that. Cause I've known that about him, but he's just one of many. Right. You know, when I was commenting on about how 
I wouldn't teach cooking because until the industry starts making meaningful change, I'm not putting another soul in this direction because fuck that it's, and the cooking schools bring out the people that get threshed the chaff. They don't, they're not the fucking people that stick around and work 14 hours a day happily. I mean, that's not them. So I'm like, no. And so his response is like, well, you know, I find this industry really rewarding. It's, this has been your experience and, you know, people can, people, we need refrigeration. Oh, yeah. people. I'm he's like, planning his coffers with money. Right. But that's the thing is, is that he's not he, two weeks before that he was crying on Instagram about how he doesn't have a patio. He needs people to come and support him with takeout. If somebody who's this successful and is this rewarded by the industry is that close to failure at any given moment, isn't that indicative of the problem of the industry? Like the most successful people are still barely successful. We measure success in delayed failure, right? A restaurant's successful if it's been open for two years. What? Most fucking small businesses don't even make money in that time frame, right? Like, so it's just, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. If you, if you look at the big picture, nobody's making money on this industry, really, except the landlords and the people supplying it, right? The successful owners are only successful for maybe 20 years if they're lucky, but then they fucking go and crash or they have a heart attack or, you know, I mean, like, um, I mean, look at the, the all of the, those restaurateurs in Vancouver, you know, like the only one that I think might actually be doing a little bit better is um, Brandon Grassuti from Pigeon. Yeah. Dude, you know what? Right when you were starting that phrase, I was thinking that as well. I was like, I was like, yes, definitely pigeon. Yeah. It's definitely the guy. Because he's not trying to have an empire. He's trying to pay his staff well. Mm-hmm. He keeps his staff. And he was, I love that he made that delivery app. Um, you know, like that uh, delivery service. So, you know, that's basically kicked like DoorDash. And that no, like, you know, like, let, let's, let's uh, switch mm-hmm. topics here and look at the background of the industry and that's okay. yeah. players. Yeah. Right? The, the, what supports like landlords, we can go there, mm-hmm. but, um, city city is a big part of the problem. The the taxation is a huge part of the problem. Government in general. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the um, city, city and federal and city and provincial governments in, in, in BC anyway. Well, they, they, I find they penalize, um, they penalize the food and beverage industry because they think that the food and beverage industry is taking. I know. I don't get Cause they don't understand the food and beverage industry at all. Like that was made very clear to me through the pandemic that the government does not have a, the most basic understanding of how that industry works. Mm-hmm. And our leadership is not good at conveying that message because our leadership, what they are, I think, are a bunch of self-serving assholes who are just like, I got mine, you get yours. I fucking put in my time, fuck you, you know? And then the other part of it is their fast food and chain restaurant lobbyists. And that's it. They do not represent the independent restaurant. No, no, no. They represent McDonald's. And and Earl's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. they, they are the ones that have the, have the money. They, yeah. They, rec- they represent their business models specifically. Yeah. So like their answer that we're going to bring in more foreign workers is like, well, that doesn't work for small restaurants at all. That works for chains and yeah. fast food, but yeah. it doesn't work for anyone else because you need people that are actually going to stick around, you know, yeah. you know, rotating cadre of six months here and six months yeah. on, right? Like, now, one thing, one thing um, I was getting to was suppliers. Um, okay, yeah. But, um, I, one thing that I've noticed mm-hmm. is also, you know, like we, and this is getting into the health aspect of things and, you know, how like we've beat our, our health up because mm-hmm. we are eating 
eating at work all the time, eating in, mm-hmm. in, in, in like inappropriately out, like oh. things and uh, just yeah. standing up, not taking time to eat properly and uh, those sorts of things. I remember when I did my apprenticeship, they made us go sit down mm-hmm. out, out in one of our, um, our catering rooms, our private rooms, and we would sit down and we would eat our meal mm-hmm. with, with, a, with like a proper setup mm-hmm. and a beverage. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was something that was never, ever done in any other restaurant. If I ever wanted to go sit down somewhere and mm-hmm. eat, it would, it would be abolished. It would be like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you out yeah. here? And I was yeah. like, well, don't you want your guests to see the chef eating the food that's coming from yeah. his own kitchen? Yeah. 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 You know, like yeah, 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 if yeah, I don't yeah, eat exactly. the food here. Yeah we've got a problem. If I don't want to eat the food here, we've got a huge problem. You oh, know, yeah. I've, I've worked in restaurants where, you know, even recently where the chefs don't, uh, would, wouldn't normally eat the food at that restaurant. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Pardon me. No, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I hear you because again, there's a lot of unhealthy behavior is, is rewarded socially and uh, otherwise in the industry, right? Like um, where I was going to go with that rewarding yeah. mm-hmm. is from the supplier. Yeah. Because the supplier wants you to buy um, what is their, their uh, highest margin mm-hmm. of profit. Right. So there, so I see, you know, things like the pushing of the potato market, for example, and like a French mm-hmm. fries and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, pushing a process, pre-processed foods. Uh, oh yeah. 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 Definitely. And, and, and oils that are terrible for you. Oh yeah. You yeah. know, and oils everywhere and others. I mean, okay. So there's different ways to get canola oil out there. I've, yeah. I've, 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 I've given, um, canola oil a hard time just because the readily available canola oils out there to eat on the market and that are being used in restaurants, mm-hmm are not are not the oils that are processed uh, yeah, it, properly and and i would say specifically the canola though it is special because it's part of the brassica family right it's actually a mustard right and yeah. mustard oil historically has not been something you're supposed to consume very much of like it's not bad in small quantities but it has an issue and i think it's the acid uh, i can't remember the name of the acid that canola oil has but canola, a, i think it starts with acid see yeah because yep. like canola, you know, the name canola is Canada oil, low acid, right? That's yeah. what, that's what it is. Right. So, um, and it was originally just for lubricating parts, but my, I'm beginning to, and this is where I don't have a lot of knowledge on this. I just know what people have told me that are educated. So this isn't my known. I've been, I've, I've heard this from doctors and nutritionists that are all that are in the cutting sort of edge, so to speak. And they're basically going like that seed oils in general are not good for us almost, almost across the board and particularly once they've been heated. Um, but so oils like olive are good and coconut oil is still on the fence. The decisions aren't made there. Um, but, um, but generally the seed oils lead to inflammation. And so there's a few like avocados apparently. Okay. Um, as well. And, but then animal fats are much better for you as long as they're not from sick, badly fed animals, right? Because so many things that are toxic are fat soluble. 
And when you're feeding an antibiotic and stuff, if you're feeding animals a whole shitty, shitty diet and putting them in a shitty environment and you eat the fat, you're going to get that substance. And then animal fats in the sense that animal fat is supposed to be like subcutaneous fat is not supposed to be intramuscular fat, right? Intramuscular fat is a sign of a very unhealthy creature generally, right? Like if we have fat in our muscles, we're in a real rough shape, right? Mm-hmm. So we're getting a misunderstanding in my mind that eating a high meat diet theoretically is good, but not because, but because the meat we have at our disposal now isn't good. It's not necessarily the panacea that it's being. Also studies uh, are starting to show that, and then not even starting. It's like something that we've already known. Yeah. Is that before um, when we consume meat, Mm -hmm. even up to a hundred years ago. Okay. Um, we were consuming with that, the rest of the, the animal. Also. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And the whole, the, the bones, the, the sinew. Oh yeah. yeah. Those parts yeah. of the animal supported yeah. eating yeah. flesh, right? Yeah. I, I, yes. Yes. And I couldn't agree. Yeah. Now, because of our, um, factory farming life world that we have developed mm-hmm. here where we can have whatever choice cut we want mm-hmm. and yeah. instantly everybody goes to eating the flesh because yeah. that's what they associate with being good. But man, I've ate, I've, I've ate pretty much every part of the animal, mm-hmm. many animals. And mm-hmm. let me tell you, they all, they're all great yeah. they treated properly, but, yeah. um, Apparently a lot of our sickness in like that's being shown that a lot of our sickness in uh North America is coming from the fact that we've thrown away the practice of eating the whole animal. Yeah, I think that's a big I think there's a big thing that I would agree with that. And also just the proportions of antibiotics and grain fed and and coming aside. Yeah, 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 no, I know. Um and and the proportions I think are way off too. Like I I like there's this doctor, I'll have to give you the link to the podcast later, but um it's a doctor that developed this diet that he was basically calling uh oh I forget the name of it, but it was kind of a cross between veganism paleo paleo. <laughs> he called it Velio or something. Um but because he was kind of poking fun at he was on a he got the idea by being on a in a group setting uh where he had a vegan and a paleo or carnivore diet guy. And he was kind of trying to poke fun at both of them by saying that he'll come up with this because in his mind, they're basically arguing the same points, except their source of protein differs dramatically. Right. Cause they're both arguing generally like a proper vegan nutritionist will keep you away from the, 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 the pointless carbohydrates, like the bad, the, the simple carbohydrates, I mean, not pointless, but like all the pastas and white rices and you know, that, that, that's the commercial breads and things because like most vegan food is just awful because they're just trying to represent replicate meat. But so this was apparently a, you know, and, and, and so a paleo people are basically saying the same thing, except they're all based off of some sort of mythology around this is what we used to eat. Uh, but, uh, but I think that there's a lot of something to be said about, that which is to go back to eating foods that are 
less processed in general, like or very limited processing. But even the flour we have, like part of the problem with the bread is that we grind flour too fine. We didn't used to grind it this way. Not, not only not only that. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, I, one thing is in North America that we actually spray all of our wheat. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We desiccate it with Roundup. Yeah. You know, yeah. like this, this is part of the huge problem where you get mm-hmm. good tolerances from. Mm-hmm. Is if you go to Europe. I mean, they, they double zero, the grind for their, their flour is super fine. And you don't have gluten intolerances in Europe like you do here. No, no, though there it's also even a zero grind flour though, if it's still stone milled, it's not as fine as the commercially milled stuff is. Um, that's basically from world after world war two, the British started milling their flour super fine. And then just kind of took over. Um, why would, why would that be like, why would this because it was easy because the technology became available. And they thought it would, and, it, and, and in certain practices of industrial practices of having finer flour, it was easier for to make is it, textured it, breads. Like more, it's for textured breads. I was thinking more shipping purposes. You know, it so. might be too. But then its problem is it's so fine it kind of it gets clogs up in your intestinal tracts more yeah. easily. But also, we don't ferment bread properly, and we haven't for like six or seven decades, right? Like I, I'm not sure what the fermentation process does to the glyphosate residues. I have no idea. I'd be curious to see if it can do I anything. Think, I think it. it eats it or breaks it down so that yeah. it's, uh, so that our gut can manage it better. Cause I do pretty well with sourdough. Bread. Studies. Oh yeah. I love sourdough. Sourdough. Yeah, and I'm making my own bread and I'm making my own kombucha, right? Like I, I drink probably 300 mils of kombucha every day from the stuff I make. Um, but a couple last month, they, uh, you know, uh, they shared, uh, their sandwich with me and, uh, they mill their own flour. They get oh, their, see, they yeah. get, get organic grains. The other thing, which is something I've just been come aware of with flour is that it goes rancid quite quickly. So most of the flour we're consuming is bad. Sort of like olive oil. Yeah. 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 And though wheat flour, whole wheat flour can go rancid in a matter of weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, white flour is slower because the germ is usually what really goes bad, but, but, um, but eventually it'll oxidize too. And so oxidated, oxidized things and rancid things particularly are quite hard and rancid oils are really hard on most people. Hmm. You know, like I used to tell people that if you have a food poisoning reaction, it's super fast. Like if you think you got it from dinner and you're sick that night, it's the oil. It's not a bacteria. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, you know, cause like if you have a French fry, a fryer that they don't change, you've already got a pretty bad quality oil to begin with. And then now it's just like rancid and fucked or if you have old nut oils or, you know, I remember, oil. I remember like back when I learned how to, to fry it was my deep fryer guy was my first job, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, I remember that the restaurant, uh, managers, the kitchen manager would push that mm-hmm. so far. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's like, Oh, yeah. it's still good. It's still good. You know? And it's like, but I can't see. Yeah, yeah. So I was that guy that would, whoops, yeah. it's gone. I would ask back in the Oscar. Right. <laughs> it's like, Oh shit. It's, it's a, I don't know what happened to that oil. So they ended up calling me the fryer God <laughs> because, but you could always see the bottom of my fryers. <laughs> right. Like, hey, no, right. I'm right. only ever filtering my fryer once. <laughs> And then I was tossing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. It, because, you know, like I, I knew there was something wrong with it, but I didn't know at the yeah. time. Yeah. Know? It's like, I, I can't tell you how many times I had managers say, like, when I say, I think it's time to change the oil. They're like, is it smoking? Like, 
that shouldn't be the threshold. <laughs> but if it's smoking, if it's smoking at 350, it's definitely time to change it. But you know. <laughs> oh my God. True story, man. Uh, I just, if I could share the, I had this one owner where his father was always there because he was, his father helped him with a bit of the cash injection to purchase the place. So his mm-hmm. father really, really, really saw that fit that he was there. You know, mm-hmm. he had to impart his wis- business wisdom onto everything. His father mm-hmm. knew fuck all about cooking mm-hmm. whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one day they uh, they did this uh, special event and they, they left the covers off the fryer. And this is an old heritage building. Oh, no. You, you know what lives in old heritage buildings. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Perfect. All sorts of vermin. Anyway, all sorts of vermin. Yeah, I come in. I come in, and they're set up. You know, and I'm like, "Okay, cool. What's going on?" And uh, I, you know, like there's the only deep fried item is fries. So I only fire up one fryer out of four mm-hmm. that we had. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I'm like, "Yeah, I don't no need to turn any of the other ones on." And then his his dad comes in, and he's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, this will take so fucking long to cook all these fries. He's like, turn on all the fryers. I'm like, what? We, I, yeah. I, I, I only needed one basket down at a time. So, <laughs> so he comes by and he fires up all these fryers. And you know, like about like 20 minutes later, I'm like, what's, what's I hear like a bubbling. Somewhat yeah, sound. Yeah. Like, what the shit is going on? And I, I turn around and look at one of the fryers is just bubbling over. And you know what that means, right? Uh-huh. Uh, protein yeah protein or water in the water inside the fryer yeah guess what i pulled out of there a large rat yeah yeah Yeah. Um, so nobody ever ate out of that fryer (laughs) (laughs) again i had the old school burn and (laughs) you know like put the chemicals in turn it up heat turn it up hot and pour it out hot you know because it's like nobody wanted to touch it uh but but, uh I found a fr- I found a mouse in my dishwasher once oh, after, yeah. after it had been being used for several hours. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, where we started on this, down this rabbit hole and mm-hmm. we were talking, I, I wanted to start talking about suppliers and then pushing these products. Oh yeah. Pushing these, these over-processed. You know, with, over- yeah. With incentive. Well, I, have, I have a little bit, I mean, working for a supplier too. Like I worked for, for Trimpac meats for almost a year and they really wanted to do that same thing. Like they had a cut steak program that they made way more money off of, but each steak was individually crowd backed. Like, so it's also a huge waste, right? Like there's a big part of the plastic waste generation is related to the, the, the packaging for food service. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, again, I can't tell you how different it is now from when I started when it, when it comes to just how stuff comes in, everything is plastic wrapped or double wrapped uh now and it didn't used to be like most things weren't and even meat you'd never get the whole idea of getting individually wrapped steaks was no really a thing even if you did get yeah i mean we would get but you can still get you'll still get whole loins in but now they come in very big boxes holding very little amounts and uh they are uh, all wet aged. They're all, I mean, that's always, that's been kind of this, this for a long time, but the meat is the least of it. It's the vegetables that have seen the massive change and the, um, dry products where I've seen massive change. I've also seen a big change away from large bulk stuff. Everything's now packaged. And a lot of that's health department. 
Like you can't buy a tub of tofu anymore. You can only buy one kilo blocks that are individually plastic cryovac, right? It's impossible. You know what the theory, you know what they're, you know what the theory is and what they're telling us mm-hmm. on the, on the service end of things, right? You like, mm-hmm. you know, you're a chef and, uh, and like what I always got told was it, it won't go off because you only open up one package at a time, mm-hmm. you know, and you can freeze it and you can do this and that, you know, and it's like, I'm like, I don't care. I'm trained mm-hmm. to know how to handle foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. products at you know and and so like i should be able to know how to butcher down something yeah and package it so that it's still good yeah and i'll, I'll not, and thank you i'll know how much to order too if you will let yeah. me because the other problem is is i can order one or 50 but i can't order 10 you know like yeah. it, it's this like you know or i have to order 10 that cost me as much as ordering 40 you know like it's it's a uh, it's it's that's a big part of it. Like I was complaining about having to open all these packages because to me that takes more time. And the reality to me is from what I've seen is that the health department has decided the only way to save us all is to enact rules that are for the least educated, least trained person. So it actually makes it harder for us who are conscious, trained and aware to do the job because of the practices put in place for this, for the uneducated barely conscious people. And that is, again, comes back to big business taking the precedent because big business does mm-hmm. things cheaply as possible. So they do hire those people. So therefore that comes in. It's also the lobbying of uh, fact, factory farms and mm-hmm. going like, this is, we want to push more meat. We want to push more meat. We need to sell more meat. We need to sell more meat. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it's, it pushes the food and beverage industry to have to consume that 50 unit to get a better price so that they mm-hmm. can charge the end user yeah. uh, a decent amount that keeps it coming back to the restaurant. Yeah. And, and then the costs associated with raw ingredients keep going up, but the costs associated with pre-made ingredients don't. Right. So even though, so now the pre, the reason to buy raw ingredients instead of pre-packaged stuff is not for price. It used to be for price. Now it's for quality. So now you actually have to make this decision to have quality, but now also labor becomes an issue. So again, industry's answer to labor problems is to automate. It is never to fix the industry, the labor problems at the source. It's just like famously when the fast food industry was told to come up with a living wage, they just automated everything and it became kiosks, right? Same with like grocery stores and all the self checkouts. It's the same kind of idea. So now in food service, people are quitting in droves. People are not going into it because the pay is too low. So what is the result of the industry? Okay, well, we'll make these sandwiches in a factory somewhere, prepackage them, treat them with some sort of inert gas or whatever to keep them fresh. And then we'll ship them to you in three short days or whatever. And then you can, they're just like gourmet. And I'm like, well, they're not, but it costs me five dollars to buy this sandwich that i can sell for like eight dollars or whatever but it would cost me this much labor to make that same thing it'd be a lot better and i just don't have that labor and then the cost of flour is insane but somehow the cost of your shitty bread isn't right like it's it's a it's it's the same as what we see with the pandemic is somehow the big box stores prices aren't rising but all the small businesses prices have to go up because the labor isn't willing to work for them at that price anymore. But because these big box stores are shipping from areas that have a very different socioeconomic 
uh, reality, they have costs that are super low. And to me, this is where the government should be stepping in and being like, hey, unfair labor practice, unfair business practice. This is antitrust. This is, this is, we had laws to prevent this from happening, but we appear to be working our way back to the pre labor revolution time, you know, like, um, let's get back to the industrial revolution era where children were working and you worked six, seven days a week and you bought your stuff from the company with, with the company store. Instead of the, you didn't get money, you got tokens, you know I mean? Like that's the way the business wants it to go clearly. And our governments are just not doing their job right now. And our unions are corrupt as fuck. So this isn't happening. So it's happening. Right. So I have Jeff Bezos breaking in billions of dollars by the day, bankrupting the small businesses in my, my city or my town. So it takes away my options as a citizen, takes away those person's livelihood, reduces the local economic base, yet enriches one individual and then keeps this fucking factory scenario going in like Nebraska or fucking Kenora or fucking, you know, the middle of like Northern, wherever they put these, you know what? Right. Yeah. And then, and then again, I get the argument too, where people are like, well, this is what I do to feed my family. I have factory farm, you know? And it's like, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hate that argument in the sense it's true, but it, but this is where it comes down to changing perspective. And then I'm going to like go back into this. One of the things that I've been learning is just like, it's not about me telling you how you're wrong or what you should be doing. It's about me listening to what your needs are. So what is it that you need to do this for? Right. And so instead of like, for, for me, like I'll use an example, like the forestry sector, because I think it's absolutely madness what they're doing, but I can't tell the logger that he's an asshole for cutting this tree down because that's what he was trained to do. And that's what his job is. And that's what his expectation is. And that's what society is that given him thing. So, and it's not fair to him to threaten his livelihood because of what he's doing is fundamentally wrong without acknowledging that that's what he's doing. Right. Or they're doing, you know? So, so we get into this clash of like, this is what we need. And I need this. And it's like, well, Hey, hang on. Can we like a, you need a livelihood right? you're feeling, are you feeling threatened or how are you feeling even just go base like that and then try to find the common ground and then look for an actual solution as opposed to my way or nothing, my way or nothing. Cause it, it appears to me that where we've reached is this point where it's just like no compromise, no listening and no critical thought even, but like, so what the factory farmer is convinced that their way of doing it is the only way. And they're their need to save the world by feeding the world, but they're also living a miserable existence because they're not making any money. Their farm equipment is basically leased instead of owned. They can't repair it themselves. Their ta- their, their taxes are, high their overhead is really high but their prices are determined by some third party that they have no control over plus they have the nature and the climate change disasters creating all this problem but meanwhile they have to deny climate change because that's the party they believe in and that's the side that's their world but they're not willing to stop and hear that there's a better way that would be better for them too all they're hearing is that what they're doing is wrong and they don't agree with you that they're wrong. Yeah. It's, it comes from that, um, 
you know, speaking at somebody and threatening somebody's livelihood. It's like, they're just going to shut down mm-hmm. and they're not going to want to hear anything. It's just yeah. Alberta and the pipeline. Right. And like, and the people that work in the oil sands. And I feel like the sad part of it is, is that those people are, have been lied to basically their entire lives and they're still being lied to because that lie helps keep a very small number of people rich right now. But, and they're also old people. So they don't even give a fuck that what they're doing now might be really bad for the world in 30 or 40 or 50 years. I mean, it's that, I think it's that level of cynicism to be honest, but, um, but like, why can't we, cause that argument again, of like at the, of the, well, this is the best way is the same with the oil and gas people. It's just like when they say, well, how did you get to the protests? What did you write the protest sign with? What did you type the protest email on? It's like, yeah, you're right. It's all oil. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean it should still be all oil. It doesn't mean it couldn't be something else. It doesn't mean I'm wrong or I'm a hypocrite. Yeah, know? sorry. I, I was just going to inter- interject for a second there because mm-hmm. one thing that I've taken out of this argument is that, and this this uh, conversation is that you can't really tell anybody. You can't get mad at anybody. No. Um, I mean, except for the really rich guy that does. Those, yes, yes. You can um, get mad at them, but again, there's not a lot of value it, in that. It's, it's, the big problem is, is our government's allowing it to happen mm-hmm. because really um, economically, you know, and something that I've learned, so I actually loved economics in college, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and it's not economically viable. No. to be sinking your investments into oil sands anymore. <laughs> right. But because those, the big companies that are, that were, were funding that before and the big banks, mm-hmm. they're already looking to future technologies mm-hmm. for renewable resources, mm-hmm. you know, because they see that that's too short, that, like, that, it, that, that investment's not going to pan out in the future. Yeah. And it's not even about the environment. No, it's not. Right. It has nothing it's to do with literally it. about the economical about yeah. viability of the situation. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, they, like, so basically being lied to these people are being lied to about a shitty economic situation where it's like mm-hmm. our government should be stepping in and going, here's free retraining. Yeah. Or just be straight. Even just be like, look, yeah. we're not going to invest in oil and gas anymore. And we're going to stop subsidizing it, but we're going to move that subsidy over to renewable sector. Right. And, and then, but the, the, the political side of this is seems to be that it, it's about personal level corruption in the politician and power for power's sake. Like in the case of say, Jason Kenney in the UCP in Alberta, I think he's one of those guys that just wants power for power's sake, kind of like most of the Republicans, you know, who just literally think they're trying to save the, but he knows the trouble with Jason Kenney is he's actually fully aware that he's lying. He, he's doing this on purpose. Like he's not a delusional person, like say Marjorie Taylor Greene in the U.S. She's just insane. Jason Kenney is, he knows what he's doing here. And um, he's taking advantage of the ignorance of the base. And because that base is in oil and gas and mining and extraction sector in general, he is telling them what they want to hear. So he'll get votes. And so he gets to be in power, even though he knows damn well, the best thing to do would be to invest, even as a conservative, especially help especially as a conservative because conservatives are fiscally conservative, right? And 
they're supposed to be the money managers, even though all evidence points to the contrary. Um, that would be the right thing to do. But because he just wants to be in power, he just plays to the fears of these people and, 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 and then ignores the xenophobia that comes along with it, or maybe doesn't even ignore it that much, but pretends to. And, uh, and then he's also one of those loyalty men, like he's a Trump style guy where he, the people that challenged him go away, even if they're the ones that are making the rhetoric that it's, even though you should be challenged in an environment like that. So his whole cabinet shuffle, like, so that's, there's that. And then there's the fact that a lot of our politicians don't actually have a lot of education in the field that they're now governing in, right? Because it's a popularity contest, you know, and, and you get some really strange people in there, you know, I mean, I don't know how some of the people get elected in the first place, but I swear it's because there's only so many options and the party's the one that determines who's there. But, um, you know, we, we are, we are in a system that is not designed for long-term thinking. We, we really seem to be stuck in a, a business style quarterly thinking, uh, and, and, uh, and, and our politicians are very selfish. Like it just seems like they're just truly selfish. Um, and incompetent and a combination or combination thereof. Right. And, and then the corruption though, I mean, I, I think corruption is a big part of our problem and it might be legal corruption in the terms of lobbying. Um, it might be that's the type, I think it's more likely the corruption of like, okay, so you do this for us kind of thing. And then you'll get to sit on these board of directorships after you get out of office or whatever, like this, that's the, the classic Canadian style of prime minister level corruption anyway. Right. I mean, you watch how many boards, ex-prime ministers are on of multinational companies that they may or may not have aided in their development. You know, it's, and I think the systems are different country, country to country, but ultimately I think that um, the big businesses have bought most of the big, big uh, governments of the Western world. And then you have China that's just manipulating quite well their agenda to these, I don't think very smart leaders you know i don't think jt's a smart guy um you know i don't think he's a bad guy either i don't think he's a bad guy but i think he's woefully uh, unprepared for the role that he's been cast in you know like i just i think i don't i don't think he runs that party like and i think that's i don't don't even wish it on him you know it's like no no on anyone really because no you know um and and like truth be told, like my my views of of politics, um, I, I I neither sway left or right, right? Like yeah. I yeah. can't because yeah. you see the flaw. I see the flaws of both sides, and I'm like, I, yeah. I want to perpetuate that system. And right, right, yeah. No, I know. I like it's. I I, I yeah. I, I feel that. I, I do vote. I vote objectively. Yeah. You know, so like what, how am I going to get the best, like where, where is my vote going to go to get the best sort of, uh, possible, yeah. you know, for yeah. the, country yeah. with the options that we have. And I think that's, you know what, in, in America, I think that's how Trump got into power, mm-hmm. um, with a lot of people as well. You know, some people, they were just like, Holy shit. No. Um, I think like Trump's definitely the lesser of the two evils. And then it's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, and that that also is specifically up to the individual, right? Like, yeah. some people really believe that he was on a war path for good, and that he was trying to shake things up and change things, mm-hmm. which he did shake mm-hmm. shake the tree, mm-hmm. you know? and 
I, the argument's still to be had, whether it was just in favor of his corporation buddies, mm-hmm. you know, his rich buddies mm-hmm. or the other rich buddies. Right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. it was a, America was just a battle between rich guys. They're just using yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, like the latest one is the, uh, the you know, the millionaires in orbit, <laughs> billionaires in orbit. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. It's like, it's like everybody's just trying to fuck this guy with their huge dicks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, the planet burns underneath. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, meanwhile, they've got a, a whole, a whole crab infestation. And yeah. You can tell that you can tell that I've cooked in kitchens, I guess, by just where my mind went right there. Yeah, exactly. But, um, in all reality, um, I think that, uh, you know, I think that like, being in this industry gives us a unique kind of outlook on mm-hmm. politics and social, mm-hmm. uh, social situations in the world and, you know, how things are going. And it's like, because we, we tend to take the look from a, like a hospitality aspect from a neutral aspect where we're like, Hey, well, you know what? You come into our, you come into our establishment. We're like, Holy ground, you know, like you can't, mm-hmm. There's no, there's no, there's no fighting here. Like I, I used to throw my hand down on the bar and, uh, tell people, um, we don't talk about politics here, mm-hmm. you know? And it's, it's, it had, it's, it, I've had to do that too many times mm-hmm. because too many people identify with the party that they follow, mm-hmm. you know, identifying as a, conservative is just or or liberal Mm -hmm. it's like so you're limiting yourself to this viewpoint yeah absolutely becomes a tribal thing at that point right like and um and and uh, i i think it's one of the sort of funny side little benefits of us having a third party in our system here um so it's it's, it, it almost never has become a just two people, two sides across the aisle shouting at each other or lobbing bombs. Um, even if one of them's never really been in power, but <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's a slightly interesting dynamic here, but yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying. It's like this idea of getting, if you get lost into it, then what's the point in having a conversation? Like you're not actually having a conversation at this point. No. You're just yelling at each other, trying to get someone to admit that you are, you are right. Right. Like the original idea of having a Senate, was mm-hmm. to, to be able to debate right and come out yeah. with the best possible outcome for the people. Yeah. 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 With all sides inputs being taken into account, kind of like a writer's room. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, like, um, you know, like one thing, you know, like, like having, having a, ta- a talking stick. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Like, this is my opinion. Yeah. And this is what my constituents care about, you know? Yeah. And, and shit, I just um, had a quote that I posted on uh, there for a while ago, which was just awesome. It was, um, what was, what was this quote? If I can remember right now. Oh, it's, it's, it's Plato quoting Plato and its opinion is really the lowest form of human knowledge. Mm. It requires no accountability, mm-hmm. no understanding mm-hmm. the highest form of empathy or the highest form of knowledge is empathy for it requires us to suspend our egos mm-hmm. in another's world it requires profound purpose, larger than the self kind of understanding. And I, I don't want to get into the ego talk 
because I disagree with getting rid of your ego. That, that, that era has passed. Um, we now know that you need the ego. And there, there's safe, safe ways to go about that. And I'm not an expert to speak on that mm-hmm. by any means. But um, these, like, this is what happens with politics is everybody's sharing their opinion because it's safe, mm-hmm. safe thing to do. Mm-hmm. No responsibility in that. Mm-hmm. You know, and the only time that we see it become bad is when it becomes action, mm-hmm. you know, and then that, that outcome is in like acts of terror that we've been seeing mm-hmm. coming on a massive rise, mm-hmm. you know, like shit, the, the like accounts of terrorism that were happening in like a few months ago and like the past three months and like at one point in three months there was 80 80 different uh, attacks that were um, racially charged terrorist act, terrorism right. Act. right and you know people get on it people get on my case about it you know it's like oh well it's just being tr- it's being uh, fabricated to make it look like this is something that came out of uh you know, politics or like uh, Trump's regime and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, I, I'm not, I'm not here. To, I'm not, I can't, I don't have an opinion on it. No, no, no. Can't, you can't really it's know. Happening. It's happening yeah. and it's there. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's something that we have to, we have to acknowledge, but people are well, choosing not to look at it. Yeah. I mean, it's the same as like the other day I was, I mean, I can't say that it was the most con, I was being the most um, compassionate in my mood at that time, but uh, somebody was, I forget what the the thing that happened, but it was something around, Oh yeah. Have, yeah. The kids, and I think it was something about having kids and all of that. And I was like, yeah, Oh yeah. And they're here just in time to watch it for the world to burn. Right. And, uh, and then the guy was like, I hate, I can't be around you when you're like this. And I'm like, like what? Like observant, like that's fucking on fire across the road, man. Like, denying it and pretending everything's fine is not better. You know, you may not, you may not like this reality, but this is what's happening, you know, and just pretending everything's fine is not going to make it fine. You know? So actually, actually I was like listening to a podcast before, um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe not even maybe a while ago, yeah. but uh, one of my favorite podcasts and, uh, and he's, he goes, uh, you know, like we're talking about being vegan to lower your own footprint and uh you know like and it's and, and that is is very subjective to how, where you source your vegetables of course even you know down to um how you wipe your ass and stuff like that and mm-hmm. it's like you know and, and how you throw your garbage out but he's like you know or like driving a vehicle he's like and we could argue that driving a gas vehicle is better than driving an electric vehicle Yes. You know, either or, but the biggest carbon footprint that anyone could ever contribute to the world is another child. Hmm. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I I don't want to have an opinion about that. No. Let's be aware. Because uh, if I do, it'll, it'll muddy the direction that I want this conversation to go in. Of course. But I mean, like, but that's an, that's an, that is a, 
a, a verifiable reality, right? Like, um, and that's the, that is the, the, the thing with all of this stuff that I see, like all of these green things is that we're not, we're still not looking at the runoff effects or the, the you know, like the, the, what, what this means, what this means, what this means, turn this means. Like, it's like, like the greenest thing you can do is have a used car, not a new fucking Tesla. Right. Like a, a used car that's still in good operating condition is the greenest fucking car you can have because yeah. it's already been made and somebody else already bought it. And all you're doing is burning the fuel in it. Now you're not all of that energy and all of those. Uh, yeah, the, car's not, the car's not going to be no. thrown out or left in a site where it's never yeah. going to be moved. And then with electric cars, I've, I've said this fucking forever. And of course, most people don't like listening to these kind of things. And I'm like, if depending on how electricity is generated in the area, it's not any more green than a car. It just moves the pollution from the city to the valley or wherever the coal plant is, right? Like in California, they're not using hydroelectricity that much. You know, in Nevada and Texas, it's all fucking coal and gas. And now it's getting into some wind, right? But like, so you're not improving fuck all doing that and then we're also capitalism running as it does which and i contend we're not actually in capitalism we're in a different system but we're going and pillaging third world countries instead of oil and gas we're doing it with rare earth minerals now and lithium you know and um and just and on and on and on it goes like the there was a pretty sh like that michael moore documentary that kind of wasn't the best because there was again, like most documentaries trying to drive an agenda without actually just reporting, but it was a basically calling out all the green energy for being quite polluting as well. Um, I'm not quite sure what his point was, except maybe to question everything, which is valid. Uh, but again, like he was manipulating it a little bit by using some really old footage and, um, old figures. Yeah. That's something that I, I'm very wary about when somebody throws me a documentary yeah. You know, they, they go, Oh, you should check out this documentary. It's the end all, yeah. you know, this is, this is all of the information that you could possibly have on why you should be vegan. Right. Yeah. Or, like or, they, they've, they've too many agendas, you know? Right. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's the, a lot of times it's one doctor or right. one researcher yeah. that has mm -hmm. gone into an area and that of research has like been very, very specific with their research. And, and they're going, and then they get some funding to make a video. Yeah. You know, and then somebody picks it up. Yeah. And, and produces it. And it's, it, it's dangerous to have those things out there because it really, it's not an eye opener. It's, no, a, it's propaganda. It's propaganda. Right. Yeah. Like if it was just presented differently, it wouldn't be propaganda, but it's presented as if this is, not this is my experience that mm -hmm. this is truth right like well no this has been my observation this is what i've seen happening here right like the only, the closest documentary that i could say that i've seen recently that i would say could say is like this is probably really a good model to follow in very broad spectrum is the biggest little farm i don't know if you've seen that one yes um that's one of the ones that i agree with because yeah. they the concept of it is not you need to be doing this mm -hmm. 
the concept of it is that more people need to be doing this. Yeah. And this is what we did and this is how hard it was, but look at how good it is now, you know? Like, yeah. This yeah. is what the struggle led to. Yeah. And you yeah. know, to be honest, um, I don't want to ever admit, I don't want to minimize their struggle, mm -hmm. but everybody goes through struggles in businesses. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And their struggle just happens to be more hands-on mm -hmm. in terms yeah. of getting dirty. Right. Well, so, and they also didn't know what they were doing. Right? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. So there's that too. You know, um, you could look at the amount of people that go and take off into the the bush mm -hmm. and build a log cab log cabin. They've been doing it, like they make uh, TV series out of it now. But yeah, we've been doing it for the last 50, 60 years, or hundreds of years even. <laughs> you know, like like this is it's not new, and yeah. uh, you know neither is this way of farming. But it needs to be done. And it needs to be done on a much more massive scale. And I've, I've, I've thought about, I've thought about flipping myself into this sort of like farming situation and being like, Oh, I want to go do this, but realize that that's not my path. That's somebody else's path. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, back onto what we we're talking about before, you know, like we we're, we we're talking about our lives, your life in particular here in this, in this conversation. And, um, you know, coming on to being in, into a struggle with, you know, what, what you really want to be doing in your workspace mm -hmm. or like in your career and uh, in your mm -hmm. life for your health and wealth and stuff like that. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's, uh, and it, if I were to give two pieces, a piece of advice and that is stop and listen, mm -hmm. you know, to take time. Mm -hmm because the answers are there. All the energy exists in the world that you would ever want to tap into. Yeah. yeah. All of the wealth is there for your taking. Mm -hmm. You just have to understand that concept and you can't tell you can't, it's crazy. Cause I can't tell you that I can't tell people that, you know, you can't be like, cause they're not going to understand yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Uh, it only happens when you stop and you listen and people think, Oh, well, I'm going to stop and I'm going to listen. I'm going to do it five minutes a day. No, no, it's, it's, it's a full stop. It, and this, this actually comes back to the, the, some of the spiritual guides that I've been paying attention to. And like, the, mm -hmm. there's a lot of it's just, just, just stop. Just stop. You don't have to react. You don't have to fill the space. You don't you can just stop and just yeah. witness. And, 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 and that comes with that listening. Cause I, I, I very much hear that. And one of the things that I've learned is, is that creativity comes from space. Like you, 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 you make space for the creativity. You don't force it. Right. It's like where I have generally always tried to fill my empty space and that played a role in loneliness issues because I think because I wanted to have that space filled and I was filling it myself well, and I was never letting myself stop. You know, wrong with that Devin, no. because, um, it's the way the generations before us were taught. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the world works in cycles, mm -hmm. you know, they kind of, they repeat themselves, mm -hmm. not literally. Okay. No, but, but the echoes, we evolve, like, we evolve as we go. We yeah, get like harder as we go and we awaken as we go and we can't change that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like I heard this quote that was like, 
history may not repeat itself, but it certainly does echo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And echo is never, um, an exact copy. Yeah. It's always augmented. Yeah. So I see, I see where you're going with that. That's awesome. I like it. Uh, yeah. and you know, when I, when I started on my path and, and quit, um, my lifestyle, Mm-hmm. It was a full stop and granted COVID lockdown allowed for that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, so challenge, man, like, you know, like we can, we can go, we can talk about these things all we want, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, have an opinion, but, uh, it's, it's all, it's all in the action. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it sounds like, it sounds like you're coming to that apex there. there, there mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I wish, mm-hmm. but, uh, positivity on your journey there and like, you know, good vibes, good energy. Oh yeah. Well, thank you. Appreciate stuff yeah. like that. But, uh, I was getting to the point of, uh, honoring our time here because we're literally, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we're not just a couple hours or almost now. Yeah. 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 No, it's been, it's been really good. I appreciate this. Um, yeah, it's been a good conversation. Really good. And you know what? I would love to have you back and we could have another conversation yep. again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. And I'm, I'm really, uh, like quite, um, humbled uh, by your journey and how much you've gone through over the last well, whole life. But you know, the changes I've seen, I, it's quite heartening for me to see. And, uh, but you know, thank you. Yeah, you know, and appreciate it's, it. it's, uh, it's, it's definitely humbling listening to your journey too, because uh, you know, um, in the end, in, in, in all reality, sorry, not in the end, in all reality, um, I've been repeating and regurgitating my story to people because, mm-hmm. People have been asking, they've been interested, but hearing other people's stories, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really understanding that you're not the only one. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing that that's one thing that uh, society has kind of got us on in that. And again, it goes back to that toxic, toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. And that's the conversation that I will um, interview somebody who has much more depth on that subject at some point. Um, mm-hmm. But uh you know, it's the way we were taught from our previous generations that did not know any better. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we can't be mad at them. No. We can't, be no. Mad. we can't be mad at our previous political situations for putting us into these situations because they didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. This is the way it is. And you know what? Um, people, like, we're all learning and we're all growing together. Mm-hmm. So that's the purpose of this podcast is to take it like, you know, this conversation that we're having is to take our experiences in the food and beverage industry, because I believe that as people in the hospitality world, we have a different at- outlook on things. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been put through the mill a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and, and we see, we see people in areas that they don't see themselves in partially because they don't remember prop clearly, you know, um, yeah. even if you can remember clearly, uh, <laughs> you know, but yeah. Yeah, I think we have a very different perspective. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like it's almost like the, the the sage having their own their own coming to light or their their own coming to reality and their own awakenings, right? It's like that, like you know, like people go and they ask people for advice, but they don't realize that that person is also going through something. Yeah, it's also been ha- also had an awakening, and it still yeah. takes them to the core. We still think about it every day, you know. Like mm-hmm. we just find ways. 
when it's fresh, it's hard. Like, you know, I, and you might deal with this, like, um, anxiety, you know, like from, you know, finding out that you have high blood pressure mm-hmm. and that you have, um, you know, possible issues with your heart. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say you do, but like, I'm just saying going into the future, like I had to wear a halter monitor too. Yeah. I think I had to wear it for 48 hours or something like that. Yeah. But, um, I hope, I hope you get the same thing that I had, which was your heart strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, too. yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, like, it's always a process. Yeah. You know, we're never done evolving and growing. And when we are, we're dead. Exactly. It's a practice. Right? Yeah. So, those, so, I mean, I like love that this, you know, this conversation we're learning about what got you to where you are now. Mm-hmm. And also hear, hearing your opinions on some worldviews, man, that's cool. Yeah. Nice. Actually, exactly. This is actually exactly what I wanted this to turn out to be. It was my first conversation of many, hopefully. And, uh, (laughs) nice. (laughs) They turned out like this. I just, I just, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to get, uh, I I don't want to say any other podcast, popular podcast names or anything, but I didn't want to get all, all Mm -hmm. uh, crazy and out on the, out on the limb with the, with topics, but, uh, you know, it's good to have it's good to to have a uh, non-biased view yeah conversation that really needs to happen yeah. it's not uh somebody throwing people under the fire into the bus right. under the bus into the fire whatever right because like what value does that have anyway right like i mean Never. it's like it's like blame for blame's sake or like you know like yeah it's like blaming ourselves for the situation that our health is in yeah you know you can't blame yourself you didn't know any better yeah, you exactly. did, and you were like, shit, man, I own this body and I'm going to do right. this for the next decade. I'm yeah. going to fuck it up. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I, I did that. Yeah. You know, I, I actually had an understanding of what good health was to begin with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I will admit fully that, you know, like I consciously threw it to the wind. Yeah. For a period. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, and then, you know, and then I started studying nutrition, you know, when I was getting my studies there, I was like, Shit, I do this the whole time. Why? Yeah. Why was I do, not doing that? But yeah. we don't do that because we weren't we weren't awake yet. No, exactly. And or we refused to be awakened. Yes. And you know, mine was a little bit of the refusal because I had been beat over the head with the religion stick for so long. Fair enough. You yeah, know, of course, of course. And. and uh, that's another conversation for another day. But. Absolutely. But yeah, no, man, absolutely. Yeah. It's like so many, there's so many things, right? It's like nothing. It's everything is interconnected. Really? Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, it sounds like you got, you had your, uh, your, your own stick as well. Oh yes. <laughs> I've had, a, yeah, I've been, I've been very good at beating myself up over things. Yeah. Well, oh no, man, just sit and listen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's, well, that's well, all I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, anyways, I'll, uh, I look forward to chatting with you again and doing this again when I'm better at. Yeah, absolutely. And like, maybe we can have a person to person conversation too, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, I, we haven't been wearing masks in Vancouver and it's brilliant. Yeah. I, I mean, know. Some people okay. are, we're, we're respecting the space and honoring the space that there are people out there that are scared. Yeah. Still. 
and uh you know um you know, people that are very one-sided pro-vax, anti-vax, yeah, like that. And it's like, you know, everybody's just got to like, let people have their own right choice yeah. because yeah. we have it getting vaccinated doesn't mean you don't get the, you don't get sick. No. So you should not be hating on somebody that's anti-vax. Right. Yeah. Or and then, and, and 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 saying it has potential harm doesn't mean you're anti-vax either. You know, like that's the thing. Uh, yeah. Like it's another one of those like you're either for it or against it. There's no like, <laughs> well, you know, they're effective, but they're also dangerous sometimes. You know, I mean, it's like you can say both those things and not be not be like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, have your head fucking fall off or whatever. But anyway, yeah. yeah, that's a that's another another one. But yeah, like this has been this has been fun, Nate. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, thanks, thanks for thanks for doing this. Mm -hmm. I appreciate my it. My pleasure. Uh, uh, yeah. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.